Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, Mike. And thank you, Barbara, for being a sounding board for Mike. Uh, good morning. This week we will be in uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 25 through 33, as Mike uh, just read. Last week we, uh, we got to look at verses 21 through 24, and, uh, and Zach was with us, and he preached, uh, kind of brought the softer side of the staff uh, for that. And, uh, and so this week I get to address the, uh, the husbands. And so uh, let me let you know what uh, my goal is. My goal is not to deliver a knockout punch at any point in the sermon. My uh, goal is that uh, over the span of the next 45 minutes or so, though, that there would be so many body blows uh, to the men in the room uh, that they would be hurting. And, uh, and so wives, feel free to refrain from nudging them in the side. That will be my goal uh, this morning. So as you're getting uh, familiar and uh, kind of oriented in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, let me tell you a couple uh, of stories. The first story uh, took place in, uh, in college. In college, I went, uh, went fishing out in the Gulf, and uh, so we're about 200 year, uh, yards off of the, uh, off of the beach, and, uh, and we're fishing, and uh, we've been catching stuff uh, just kind of left and right, and, uh, and then as we're getting ready uh, to head in, uh, I get bit by a shark, and, uh, and so uh, get bit by the shark, and as a result, uh, the shark swims away, and, uh, and then as the shark is coming back, the shark turns around, comes back at me, and I do what I've been trained to do uh, by watching television and so forth. I don't know if it's a, in any way uh, actually what you're supposed to do, but I punch the shark right in the snout or nose or whatever it is that you call uh, that part of a shark. And, uh, and the shark disappeared. I assume that my punch just kind of vaporized it or something because I never saw it uh, again. Uh, that is story number one, okay? Story number two also involves aquatic beasts. Uh, a few years before um, Casey and I were married, I was with some friends uh, in Florida. And if you've ever been to Florida, uh, especially South Florida, and seen some of the rivers there, you might know what I'm talking about. Uh, the rivers there are completely pitch black. And, uh, and, uh, and then they're surrounded on the sides with cypress trees that are kind of hanging down into uh, the water. And so uh, we decide that we want to borrow a friend's jet ski and we want to take it into the ocean, go to the beach, uh, and play there. But uh, in order to do that, we have to launch in a river. Uh, 
And, uh, and so there's a river that is about a quarter mile from the place that we were staying. And, uh, and all week long we had been there. And uh, as we were uh, there, we kept noticing alligators going in and out of the water. And, uh, and so we launched the jet ski uh, into the water knowing there are alligators in this water. Now, if you've been coming to uh, Parkway for any period of time, you know one of my biggest, just completely irrational fears is lizards. Uh, and so you might have heard the story. My brother used to torment me with lizards. But what is an alligator? But he's just basically like this roided up super lizard. And so this is one of the most terrifying things for me is to think about the idea of actually being in a river, especially a river in which you can't see anything uh, with uh, an alligator. And uh, my second greatest fear, by the way, for those who are uh, interested, is water that you can't see anything. So this is the combination, this is a perfect storm of fears for me. And, uh, and so we go, head down the river, uh, head out into the channel, uh, go to the beach, uh, play around on the jet skis there, have a great time, but then we have to go back in order to dock it. And, uh, and so uh, we come around this bend in the river, and right in the middle of the river, is a big thing of seaweed. You thought I was going to say alligator, but it's not. It's a big thing of seaweed, but I run right through it. There's literally no time for me to react, no time for me to do anything except for I could turn the jet ski as hard as I possibly could, in which case I would have flown off into Death River. And, uh, and so I decide not to do that, and I just go straight through this thing of seaweed. Now, there's a friend on the back of the boat with me, and so it is now myself and this friend who happens to be uh, a, a female friend of mine, and so we are stuck now because we have sucked up the seaweed into the intake of the jet ski, and so we're just completely dead, uh, stopped. We sit there for a couple of minutes. I have no idea what to do. I'm not handy at all, and, uh, and I am even less handy when it comes to uh, getting in the water and trying to figure out what's going on with the jet ski, so we just sit there. That's literally what we do for uh, who knows how long. It probably was five, seven minutes or something like that until this boat comes up alongside of us. And I think, goodness gracious, we are saved. This guy is on the boat. Uh, he looks like he is just this salty old man. Looks like he belongs on a fish sticks box or something like that. And, uh, and so I say, hey, man, thank you so much for stopping. Can you throw us a rope and just tow us back? The, the dock is about a mile upriver. And he says, no, which I was not prepared for. Uh, and so I asked him again, thinking maybe he thought I asked, can I have your boat or can we swap or something like that? And so I asked him again, hey, can you just tell me? And he looked at me and said, I said, no. So now I'm really confused. And, uh, and he says, no, here's what you do. He said, I've done this a number of times. He said, you just jump off the jet ski. And, uh, and then you just reach under there and you just pull the seaweed out of the intake valve. And that's it. And so I said, but aren't there alligators in the water? And he said, yeah, but they won't mess with you. I was like, yeah, they don't mess with you typically until they mess with you. And then you're in trouble. And, uh, and he said, don't worry about it. And, uh, and then he left. He literally just left us there. And, uh, and so it's myself and, uh, and this, uh, this female friend of mine. And, uh, and so I realized I'm bigger than her. And so I pushed her in the water. <laughs> no, I didn't really. I didn't really. No, I, uh, instead I just sat there. My eyes literally started to fill with tears at the idea of what I'm about to have to do because I'm not going to make my friend jump into the water. And, uh, and so after uh, another probably five minutes or so, I finally work up the nerve to jump in the water. 
And I'm not like treading water because I'm afraid that if I like move my legs, it's going to attract an alligator. So I'm slowly reaching under there, pulling each time I reach under there and pull out seaweed, I'm fully expecting something to just grab on. I'm thinking this is certainly uh, the end of it, uh, but managed to get the seaweed out, got back on uh, the jet ski, was still crying, and, uh, and, and then managed to make it back to shore. The reason I tell these two stories is because these are two kind of differing, contrasting versions of how you might understand masculinity. And, uh, and so our culture kind of has this expectation in light of what we talked about last week, in light of the fact that we just sat and we, we worked through a text that tells wives to submit to their husbands, we might have this caricature that what true manhood is, is that idea you get bit by sharks and you punch them in the nose and you go and you wrestle bears, but not in Alabama because that's illegal as we learned last week. And yeah, you chew glass and drink gasoline and all of these uh, sorts of things. That's what our culture thinks. If you preach a sermon about submission, then the next week what you're going to do is you're going to preach this sermon about how men are to, uh, to be this sort of caricature. And yet I think biblically, the second story is really going to give more, it's going to encapsulate more of what the Scripture is going to describe as being the role of a husband, the role of masculinity, the role of marriage, uh, of manhood within marriage is more this idea of sacrifice than it is this sort of machismo, whatever it might be. So last week, we, we talked about how secular reasoning in our culture really sees only two ways for us to understand uh, gender and roles within the home. We're either, uh, the term that we used was egalitarian. Egalitarian means that you view all of the differences between men and women as being incidental. So men and women are absolutely equal in essence, value, dignity, and worth, but they also need to be given equal access to absolutely every responsibility and role within the home and the church. And our culture says that the only other option except for that, the only other option in contrast to that is this, role, uh, this sort of role of uh, sexism. Sexism is the idea that men and women are not equal. And, uh, and yet what we saw last week is there is something that is in between those two ends of the spectrum. There is a view, a biblical view, that says men and women are absolutely equal in worth, value, and dignity, and yet God has ordained and given them unique roles within the home and the church. And we call that view uh, complementarian, not complement with an I, like you have nice eyes or something like that, but complement with an E, the idea that men and women are different. They correspond to each other. They harmonize with, uh, with each other. And, uh, and so that's what we want to talk about this week. In light of what we talked about last week and the roles of women uh, within uh, the, uh, the home, what is the corresponding role of men? How are men to engage within a marital relationship? And so before we talk about that, I want to come clean in light of what Carl talked about in Theological Equipment. He talked about the manipulation of truth and how we tell half-truths and so forth. And so I want to tell you, my shark attack story is absolutely true, but it is helpful for you to know that that shark was two and a half feet long and that it just bit my shirt. So it didn't actually like bite my body. And the only reason I punched it in, in uh, the, uh, the nose was because I was actually in a boat and it was coming back towards the boat. So at no point was I actually in danger or anything like that. And kind of full, full disclo disclosure, uh, I actually uh, put my shirt into the shark's mouth so that I could go back to college uh, and tell people that I got bit by a shark. So 
that tells you a little bit of something uh, about my, uh, my sort of life in college. So I am going to pray for us, and, uh, and, and then I'm hopefully going to change out my mic pack. And so let me ask you to do this. As, uh, as I'm changing that, let me ask you just to take a moment and to pray for yourself. And then after you've prayed for yourself, let me ask you to uh, pray for those around you, and then to pray for me, and, uh, and then I will change out the pack, and I will pray, and we'll begin. Father, we confess that we need you this morning. We confess um, that uh, you are gracious and kind and your word is sufficient and authoritative and uh, we want to be challenged and changed by it, Lord. We want uh, you to conform us um, to the image of your son. Husbands, wives, singles, children, all of us in this room, Lord, are in need of grace this morning and your word provides it for us. And so uh, I pray that we would, uh, we would receive it. I pray that you would uh, protect us from any distraction of the enemy, that you would protect us from any sort of logistical things like uh, mics and so forth, that this, uh, this message might uh, be able to be received without any sort of distraction or anything like that, Lord. And so help us this morning. We pray these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at uh, verse 25. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 25. Where Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up uh, for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this seems rather obvious to us in the 21st century. But in the first century, you have to understand, this was uh, super, super, as Zach would say, spicy. This was countercultural. This was uh, downright revolutionary within the context of the, uh, the first century. In both Jewish and Greek contexts, if you look at the ancient uh, world, husbands, when they were given these sort of household codes where authors would tell husbands to do certain things and wives to do certain things, husbands were almost universally told not to love their wives, but to control uh, their wives, to instruct their wives, and so forth. And so this is a very countercultural thing. If you're growing up in uh, a, a Greco-Roman or a Jewish context in the first century, you are used to seeing these sorts of uh, household codes that we've been talking through. And yet when you get to this, you're a little bit uh, taken aback by the fact that he would use the language of love. Um, there were obligations and responsibilities that authors would write about, but love was never this major nuance that, uh, that authors would use. And so biblically, though, what we see is there is this connection between what we talked about last week and what we talk about this week, that submission and love go hand in hand. For us, the more controversial passage uh, in our context, the more controversial passage is what ta uh, Zach talked about last week in regards to submission. But in the first century, this by far, this call, this command for husbands to love their wives was by far the more controversial, the more uh, offensive. But we can't jettison one without the other. We can't pick and choose which one we're going to follow. We can't say, I love love, but I hate submission because these things are woven together uh, by uh, the author. And we've talked before a number of times in our services about the difficulty of defining love in a culture that uses that word for everything. 
We love tacos and we love dogs and we love our college football teams and we love on and on and on we go. This sort of word that's been diluted and robbed of the depth uh, that it is intended. So what is love? I, I remember uh, when I was in first grade and, uh, and there was this girl, uh, her name was Kelly. And so I, call, I called, called, her, called her on her on the phone and I think my brother might have dared me or something. Uh, but I called her and whenever she answered the phone, I started singing Stevie Wonders. I just called to say I love you. And, uh, and then we started dating. That's what you do in the first grade. And then a week later, she broke up with me. She started dating this guy named Justin. And Justin was super cool because he had a Justin Boot Company jacket that had the word Justin on it, which was his name. And so she started wearing that. And I was heartbroken. But that's not love. So what is love? What is love in the context of what the, the, the biblical authors are talking about? I took my sort of best a uh, uh, sort of uh, approximation description of love as we look at it in the scriptures, and I came up with this sort of definition, that whenever we're talking about love within the context of marriage, it's something like a covenantal commitment to pursue the ultimate good of another. A covenantal commitment to pursue the ultimate good of another. At the root of the idea of love, especially marital love, is the idea of covenant. It's a solemn oath a vow or a commitment, but not only does love uh, suggest or connote uh, the idea of covenant and commitment, but also the idea of sacrifice. As the Bible says, we are to love as Christ loved the church. And what is the way that he loved the church in this passage? He loves his church by condescending to unite himself to manhood condescending to become man and giving himself up to death, even the shame of death on the cross. That is love. So as we begin this morning talking about love, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let me just see a show of hands. If you're a husband in this room and you have consistently, always, universally loved your wife in that way, look around. There's not even like somebody jokingly holding their hand up, right? None of us have done this. None of us have carried out this in the way that we should. Zach said last week that we're going to hit them in this week, so that's what we're doing. There's something uh, at the end, there's something that we'll talk about and scattered in between. There's something for wives, there's something for singles, there's something for children, there's something for all of us in this passage, but in particular, we're going to address husbands because that's what the text is dealing with uh, explicitly. Uh, this command right here to love your wives as Christ loved the church, if you're honest with yourself as a husband, it should completely unravel you and convict you. Every single one of us in this room, if we're being honest with ourselves, if we really understand what Paul has just written, if we really understand what the Spirit is asking of us and demanding of us as husbands, this should completely unravel and convict you. He has just said, sacrifice yourself. Die to your preferences. Die to your privileges. Deny yourself. And what makes this so incredibly convicting, if we're honest, is that it's constant. The constancy of it. Love here, the, the verb in the Greek is a present tense verb, which signifies some sort of ongoing and consistent expectation or obligation or command. I'm okay at sacrificing in the short term. Occasionally be laying in bed and uh, I'll hear something in the house and so I roll over to Casey and say, hey Casey, go check that out. I don't do that either. 
right? I get up out of bed, I grab a gun, or I have this sweet wooden samurai sword that someone brought me back from Japan, and I'll go check the house, and I'll spend 15 minutes checking all the locks, checking the windows, checking under the beds, checking in Larkin's room, checking the closets, whatever it might be. 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is, uh, I'm gone checking the house, and I come back, and you know what? I am glad that I've done it. Otherwise, I wouldn't get to go to sleep because I have all these fears and so forth, but I'm glad to sacrifice that sleep. But you know what's harder for me is if Casey wants to have a deep heart-to-heart at 10 p.m. All of a sudden now, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to sacrifice sleep. I am much more, uh, much more inflexible when it comes to my time and sacrifices and, uh, and so forth. I can't love Casey as Christ loved the church by having one super long heart-to-heart. Some of us, I think, try to do that at times. We try to kind of make this huge deposit uh, in, our, uh, in our wife's heart. We have this sort of uh, really long, extended weekend, and then we just kind of think, I can go into relational hibernation as if there's some sort of like rollover minutes in our relationship with our spouses, and yet that's not uh, the case. Day after day after day, we wake up and we ask, how can I best imitate, imitate Christ? in every interaction with my spouse? How can I intentionally and consistently love her by selflessly serving her? So again, if you're not challenged by that question, if that question doesn't provoke in you some degree of conviction, I don't think you're really understanding what I'm saying. I don't think you're understanding what the text is saying. Christ has just said to lay down your life for your wife. Not once or sometimes or frequently, but day after day after day. And I was thinking about this as I was studying this passage, and I thought, man, not only is this challenging, but at the same time, this is also deeply comforting to me to recognize that this is not just law, this is gospel. This is gospel reality. Even as I recognize how far I fall short of loving Casey like Christ loves the church, I remember how Christ loves the church, that he gives his life He gives his life for me and for my sin, even the sin of failing to love Casey as I should. So Christ's care for the church implies his care for those who compose it, and that's you and me. So let's see how that care is manifest. Look in verse 26. Verses 26 through 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So we see the reason here that Christ died for the church. He died for her to to prepare her for marriage. What Paul's using here is is he's using this imagery that's familiar in both Greco-Roman and in Jewish contexts of this sort of cultural expectations of marriage in which friends and family would come before the wedding ceremony and they would prepare the bride uh, for the, uh, the upcoming ceremony. Uh, Casey and I just celebrated our anniversary uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and for the first time ever, we watched our wedding videos. We had this wedding video. We had never actually watched it together. Kind of had always had plans to do it on our anniversaries, and it never worked out. So this year, we just, uh, uh, just sat down and, uh, and disciplined ourselves uh, to actually do it. And it was fun. It was fun to go back and to watch 
some of the things that I'd forgotten had happened at the reception and, uh, and so forth. But one of the things that we got to see is uh, these little glimpses. I got to see for the first time a little glimpse of Casey's day uh, as uh, there were some clips that showed like uh, her being uh, surrounded by her friends and family uh, as they're all getting their makeup done and getting their hair done and getting manis and petties and all of those uh, sorts of things. And I, I, I was able to kind of see what she went through that day. That was something that happened also within a Greco-Roman or a Jewish context. There was this, uh, this ceremonial nuptial bath that the bride would take as a cleansing before the upcoming ceremony. That's the language uh, that the text is using here where it talks about being washed and cleansed. He's kind of picking up that, uh, that imagery. But here, it's not the neighbors. It's not the neighbors or the friends or the family who are adorning the bride. It's Christ himself, the bridegroom, who is cleansing and beautifying his bride. So why is that? Why does the imagery change from the kind of cultural contextual expectation. Why is that? I think it's because there is an illusion, there is an intention uh, for this passage to kind of be merged with the imagery of the Old Testament. So most scholars, whenever they're looking at this, uh, they see there an allusion to uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, which we'll put up on the, uh, on the screen. Ezekiel 16 says this, starting in verse 8, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into the covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So as Yahweh cleanses and clothes Israel, so Christ here cleanses and clothes the church, his beloved bride, that she might be adorned with splendor and glory. This, this is the goal. This is the goal of Christ's death and the goal of God's relationship with his people, to take a people who are not beautiful and to make them beautiful, to take a people who are defiled, defaced, deformed, and to make them glorious and resplendent. Jesus doesn't love the church because the church is lovely or lovable. Jesus loves the church and therefore makes us lovely. Let's look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body, bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So we see this constant movement in the text back and forth between Christ's relationship with the church and a husband's relationship with his wife. So after expounding upon Christ and the church, Paul's going to bring it back to this imagery and this command for husbands and wives, and again, commend love as the summation of a husband's responsibility toward his wife. And he's going to give us another picture as he does so. Not only should we love like Christ loved the church, but we should love 
as our own bodies. Now, I think for some of us, this is much more immediately evident uh, than for others. Some of us love our bodies in a particular way, whereby we're sculpting uh, our muscles and so forth for hours in the gym, and we're only doing uh, eating paleo, and we're doing CrossFit, and obviously we're telling everybody that we do CrossFit, because everyone who does CrossFit tells everybody that they do CrossFit. There are certain things that, that we might resonate with uh, in terms of loving our own bodies. Some of us have the hand creams and the beard oil and all of these sorts of things. But biblically, everybody loves their own bodies, not just those who put hours and hours and hours into sculpting and crafting uh, their bodies. This isn't just an analogy for those. It's an analogy for all of us. This is a universal truth. Everybody loves his own body. Some of us love our bodies by eating broccoli. Other, others of us love our bodies by eating pizza, but all of us love our own bodies. But you might ask, but what of those who don't seem to love their own bodies? Uh, when I was growing up, I went through a lot of awkward stages. Maybe you did too. I think everybody kind of goes through awkward stages, and there's times where we don't love our appearance, or we don't love certain aspects or attributes of ourselves. What about that? What about people who self-mutilate or whatever it uh, might be Biblically, though, what secular, well, first, what secular sort of self-help psychology is going to say is the problem is they don't love themselves enough. They don't have high enough self-esteem. Biblically, though, the problem is not that you don't love yourself enough. It's that you love yourself too much. You're like narcissists in, in, uh, in Greek mythology, so content at staring at yourself that you deny yourself and the things that you uh, are actually needing. But... Paul isn't dealing with questions like self-esteem or those kinds of things. He's not commanding you to love yourself. He's assuming that you do because you're human. What he's doing here whenever he says that uh, everybody loves their own body, what he's doing there is just presenting sort of a universally recognized truth. If I take this bottle of water and I throw it at your face, you're going to flinch. That's just natural. That's innate. That's instinctual. Why? Because we love ourselves. We seek to protect ourselves. That's the imagery that, uh, that Paul is building on here. And this call to love like we love ourselves is not something that's just unique to Paul. It's not unique to the book of uh, Ephesians. You remember Jesus, when Jesus uh, says this phrase, he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the same sort of idea. And it's not just something that we just find in the New Testament. We find it in the Old Testament as well, where uh, the command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so biblically, realistically, who is a closer neighbor to you than someone who shares not only your neighborhood, but your very bedroom and your very bed? And so he says to love your wives like you love your own bodies. And as Christ has nourished and cherished the church, so husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives. Again, this command in the context of the first century would have been controversial, it would have been countercultural. In most ancient cultures, the job of the wife was to make the husband look good. The job of the wife was to show off the excellencies and glories and, and, and supremacy of their husband. But here it seems like the tables are turned and husbands are commanded to cherish and nourish their wives, to show them off, to make them beautiful and glorious. I'm a bit of a kind of an OCD hygiene guy. Some of you might also be. You ever been watching uh, a movie and uh, it's set in the Old West 
or it's set in the Middle Ages or something like that, and it's a love story, and towards the end, the hero and the heroine kind of get together, and, uh, and they embrace each other, and they share a kiss. You know where my mind goes? I bet they stink. <laughs> I don't know why, but I always think that. That's what I always think, because I am just such this OCD uh, hygiene uh, guy. That's what I think. If you neglect your body, the result is unhealthy. The result is unclean. That's the imagery here. If you neglect your spouse, your marriage will be unhealthy and unclean. A few uh, days ago, we took Larkin, and we went on this three-mile hike through some trails uh, in, uh, in McKinney, and we, we bought this uh, hiking backpack because we're going uh, to the mountains uh, in a few weeks. And, uh, and so we bought this hiking backpack, and she kind of sits uh, behind me, and she loves it. And so we went for three miles, not in the mountains, but just here in McKinney, and at the end, I was absolutely exhausted, which just shows me just how out of shape I uh, am. Yesterday, I went over to my brother's house, and we played ping pong, and I was exhausted at the end. Table tennis, not real tennis, table tennis, all right? That shows me something about uh, how I have neglected my body, and there, it just points us to this, uh, this realism, this, this general truth that is, if you neglect something, you're always going to move towards unhealth. You're going to move towards disorder. You're going to move towards disease. Is there anything, is there anything at all that will grow healthy through neglect and indifference? So why would you expect your marriage to be any different? Why would you expect your marriage to be any different if you're neglecting or indifferent towards the needs of your spouse? Our culture has this, uh, this sort of cultural uh, despisal of, uh, of those who are, we call deadbeat dads, but biblically there should also be this uh, sort of hatred of the imagery of a deadbeat husband as well. We should have this sort of similar visceral reaction to a husband who neglects their brides through abuse or misuse or disuse, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual or otherwise, whatever it is. Christ didn't come to be served by the church, but to serve her Likewise, husbands are called to cherish, to nourish, and to serve their brides. That's what headship and authority look like when stewarded well. In verse 31 and 32, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul's going to begin here. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and up to this point, it seems as though what he's been doing is kind of mixing metaphors. Which is it? Is the church the body of Christ? Is the church the bride of Christ? It seems like he is mixing those two metaphors, but here we see the reason for mixing those metaphors is because those metaphors are actually uh, intrinsically connected. That to be the bride of Christ is to be the body of Christ in light of what Genesis 2, uh, 24 is saying uh, that husband and bride are united in one flesh. By the way, if you've ever wondered where the Roman Catholic Church got, gets the idea of marriage being a sacrament, it's from uh, this text. Uh, in this verse, the Latin translation uh, of the word mystery, we have the word mystery there, is sacramentum. Uh, and, uh, and so the mystery, though, in Ephesians has nothing to do with the idea of sacraments. It has nothing to do with imparted grace. Seven times this word mystery or mysterion in the Greek is used, and throughout it always refers to something that's hidden but has now been revealed, in particular the mystery of the gospel. We saw it in chapter 3 uh, where Paul talks about the mystery is that Jews and Gentiles are united in one body, 
that Christ doesn't have two brides, Jews and Gentiles, or, or Israel and the church, that he only has one bride, and that bride is composed of both uh, Jews and uh, Gentiles. That's the mystery there. The Greek word mysterion refers to something that no one fully saw coming, but something that has now been revealed. It isn't like the TV show where the, the villain is revealed up front and you know who did it. It's also not like the one where at the end of the show you have no idea who did it. It's like the one where at the very end, at the climax, all of a sudden there's this whodunit, sort of Scooby-Doo moment where all of a sudden you realize who the villain is. So for instance, last week A&M blew a 34-point uh, uh, lead to UCLA. That's not a biblical mystery. Everyone who knows anything about the Aggies knows that's going to happen. I went there. I am used to it. It happens all of the time. You should have expected that it is going to happen. We do this every year. The mystery is something that you don't expect, and yet it has now been revealed. In Roman Catholicism, the mystery is marriage itself, but in Protestantism, the mystery isn't marriage but what marriage mirrors and signifies, which is the gospel. What Paul's saying is that the deeper meaning and underlying uh, message of marriage in Genesis 24 is that a man and woman will be united in one flesh. That's the meaning, and that's a mirror of the gospel. If you were to read Genesis, if you were to go back and to read Genesis with no context for understanding marriage, no context for understanding the gospel, no context for any of these sorts of things, you might just pass over 224 as if it's just something that's incidental. And yet, biblically, it is a foundation for our understanding of marriage, not only marriage, but also the gospel. When Jesus is asked about divorce and remarriage, this is the passage he goes back to. His response is predicated on this passage in Genesis. And Paul says here that not only is our understanding of marriage dependent on this passage, but in some sense our understanding of the gospel. Here's the point that he's making. Marriage is a picture painted on the canvas of creation to reveal the glory of, God, of the gospel. Marriage is a picture painted on the canvas of creation to reveal the glory of the gospel. This is why any and all distortions of marriage, in a sense, are portraying, painting this false picture of the gospel. That's why distortions of the biblical portrait of marriage are so devastating. Let's talk a little bit about divorce. Did you know that over 40% of first-time marriages end in divorce? Over 60% of second-time marriages end in divorce. Over 70% of third-time marriages end in divorce. In the U.S., there is a divorce every 36 seconds. Every 36 seconds, there's a divorce here in the U.S. According to some studies, of all religious groups in the U.S., Baptists actually rank number one in highest percentages of divorce, with some 29%, according to some studies. So if marriage is intended to paint a picture of Christ's love for the church, then that image smears when you talk about divorce, because it portrays a caricature that says that Jesus can or will divorce his bride. Or moving on for divorce into adultery. What does adultery say? Zach read some statistics a few weeks back on the prevalence of uh, adultery and saw that 41% of married people have had an affair. And if you were to ask uh, the, the, the majority of people within the, the U.S. Uh, whether they would have an affair 
if, uh, if they knew they would not get caught, 74% of people who responded to that survey, 74% of men and 71% of women said, absolutely, I would cheat if I knew that I wasn't caught. So if marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the bride, then what does adultery portray? It portrays the falsehood, the lie that Christ has more than one bride or that we can have more than one God. And you could do this exercise, and we will do this exercise when we get into Romans chapter 1 and look at the imagery uh, there in a few months. But you could do this exercise over and over and over again with any sort of perversion or distortion of what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality, whether that's uh, pornography or premarital sex or uh, homosexuality or whatever it is. All of these things are caricaturing the biblical portrait of marriage, and thus they're caricaturing the biblical portrait of the gospel. This passage screams the mystery and meaning of marriage, but the Bible has been full of whispers of that throughout. Hosea chapter 2, 19 through 20 says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. Isaiah 61, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah 62, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. There's also dozens of places where Israel's idolatry is going to be related to the imagery of adultery. Ezekiel 16, which we just read earlier about uh, God, Yahweh, pulling Israel out of their condition and clothing the, uh, her and cleansing her is going to be replete with examples uh, and the use of the imagery of unfaithfulness. Something like 24 times there are, uh, there are references to Israel's unfaithfulness using the imagery of harlotry and infidelity. So marriage is this consistent image that we see throughout the Scripture of God's relationship with His people, which means that there is much more at stake in our marriages than just our happiness or even our individual holiness. That we're either imaging Christ well or we're belittling and demeaning His grace and goodness and glory in our relationships. Each Tuesday, uh, the staff gathers together and we critique the sermons from the previous week. We gather together and we just kind of uh, give small little feedback, constructive criticism. So uh, there'll be comments like, you should have said this clearer, or you shouldn't have stuttered, or you shouldn't have said uh so much, or whatever it might be. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and as we're having these conversations, we're just trying to, uh, to, to, to take note of the fact that we haven't fully arrived. Jerry's been preaching for three decades. He's, he would be the first to say he's never preached a perfect sermon. We're all far behind him in terms of the time that we've been done, and we're never going to fully arrive. There's always this opportunity for us to continue to grow uh, and, uh, and so forth. We haven't uh, yet reached a perfect sermon, so we're trying to critique ourselves and trying to make our sermons more faithful. Likewise, your marriage is a sermon. That's what the Bible is saying. Your marriage is a sermon, and you will be judged by how faithful a message you proclaim. That your marriage is bigger than your own marriage. Your marriage is a picture of something else 
husbands and wives both, how you love and serve your spouse says something of what you believe about Jesus. Your marriage is a proclamation of the gospel. So is it a good and faithful representation of Christ's love for his church? Or is it a caricature? Does it make a monstrosity of the reality of Jesus' love for the church? And even for those of us who would say, I have a great marriage. Still, the imagery there of preaching a sermon, when you finish preaching a sermon, you don't say, that was an excellent sermon. It could be no better. Likewise, you say, what are the opportunities I have to grow? I'm 40 years into marriage. I have a great marriage. How can I have it better? How can I more faithfully represent Christ? How can I be more patient, long-suffering, gracious, forgiving, faithful, kind, merciful, loving, purposeful, and generous? Because Christ is all of those things toward his bride every single day and day after day after day. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we get to the final word to husbands and wives, and then we'll turn our attention a little bit to the church universal Again, husbands are not told to rule over or to exercise authority over the wives. Authority is something that's assumed but not commanded for us to chase. Wives are called to submit, as we saw last week, but husbands aren't called to make them do so. That's not the command that's here. The command to husbands is to love your wives. Loving your wives as Christ uh, loved the church is a big enough concern that you don't have the time or the energy, the opportunity to add to your plate the concern of whether or not your wife is submitting to you, whether or not your wife is respecting you. You focus on your responsibility and role and trust the Spirit to challenge and convict your wife. So much marital conflict that I've seen over the years is related to this, that the husband is looking at what the wife's doing and the wife is looking at the husband's, what the husband's doing instead of just them looking at their own unique roles and responsibilities, what the Spirit has told each of them uh, to do unilaterally. If you try to watch someone else running their race, you're going to stumble. So husbands are called to lead. They're called to lead by love. That's what Jesus has said regarding servant leadership. That the, the, way that, that, uh, the way that the Gentiles exercise their authority is by lording it over. But Jesus says the way that you are to exercise your authority is by love, by service, by sacrifice, by selflessness. Love her as yourself because she is your bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. And likewise, wives, your responsibility is not to fixate on your husband and try to fix him. Your responsibility is not to figure out whether your husband is loving you well. You're to, you're to do what you're called to do, which is to respect your husband. The Spirit has said to submit to and respect your husband. Notice there's no qualifier. We talked about this last week. The Bible doesn't say respect your husband if he's worthy of respect. Respect your husband if he's loving you like Christ loved the church. It just simply says to do this. The same way that it tells husbands, it simply says love your wife, like Christ loved the church, regardless of whether or not you find her lovely or lovable in that instant, you are to love her. And wives, you are to respect your husband. There are two types of respect that we could talk about. Culturally, we've moved away from one and moved entirely into the realm of the other. The two types of respect, there's one type of respect that's earned that's the type of respect you get in a relationship over time. There's another type of respect that's simply by virtue of their position. 
That's what the Bible is calling wives to in regards to respecting their husbands. It doesn't matter whether or not he's earned your respect. He has your respect by virtue of the fact that he is your husband. So what if your husband is not worthy? That's not the question. The question is never, never whether your husband is worthy of respect. The question is whether Jesus is worthy. And therefore, will you respect Jesus by respecting your husbands? As we close, I want to address the husbands, and then whenever we do communion, we'll uh, kind of talk about how this text applies to wives and to singles and children and anyone else. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of different ways that we could kind of look at applications or implications of this passage. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of proper ways that you might be led to respond uh, to this passage, but the meaning is the same. Love your wives as Christ uh, has exemplified love for the church. Everything else is just going to be restatement or clarification or example. You'll notice that uh, we haven't talked a lot in here about the practicals. We haven't talked about helpful hints. We haven't talked about uh, strategies for resolving conflict. We haven't talked about seven steps to have the perfect marriage or whatever it might be. And that was uh, rather intentional. As helpful and important as those things might be, I think our culture is far too obsessed. What we want to do is we want to move far too quickly to the practical without seeing the theological foundation that is, uh, that is laid. But the foundation is going to be essential if we're going to build on it correctly. That said, practicals are important. We don't obey Christ's commands in the abstract. We incarnate love into our actual lives and calendars and homes and bedrooms. So for that reason, what we wanted to do is we wanted to post a blog. So, or later this week, we'll post a blog with some helpful hints uh, that you can apply as you seek to carry out this command. But what we wanted to do in this sermon is really just more provoke your heart and your mind to think about how am I loving my wife? Am I loving my wife like I love my own body? Am I loving my wife like Christ loved the church? So I want to uh, encourage you uh, to do a few things uh, this morning. I'm going to ask you a few questions, and I have three hopes for those questions. Three questions and three hopes for those questions. Uh, let me give you the hopes first. My first hope is that you would actually think about these. Uh, I've been in a lot of worship services. I've heard a lot of sermons where I checked out as soon as the sermon was over. Honestly, I've been in a lot of sermons where I checked out well before the sermon uh, was over uh, as well. But let me encourage you. You can do that this morning, but your marriage, your understanding of this text, your understanding of the gospel is not going to be benefited as a result. So let me encourage you. The first thing is think about these things. Would you consider these questions carefully as it relates to your own heart and life and marriage? That's the first hope. The second hope is that I want to encourage you to invite other men into this wrestle with you, whether that's your community group or a discipleship group or a Bible study that you have at work or whatever it might be. Invite others into it. Iron sharpens iron, but over time, even the best of us grow dull, and we need to have that constant sort of refinement that community provides. So that's the second hope and expectation. Not only you would consider it carefully individually, but you would consider it within the context of your biblical community. And the third thing, if you're man enough, is that you would invite your wife into the discussion. What she says might hurt. How she helps you process through the answers might be uh, painful, but it's the kind of pain that actually leads you to do something. 
It's the kind of pain that tells you, oh, my wrist might be broken. I need to go and get it set or surgery or whatever it might be. So those are my three hopes. One, that you would consider carefully. Two, that you would wrestle with these things in the context uh, of biblical community. And third, that you would wrestle through these things with your wife, that you would allow her the opportunity to answer the questions alongside of you. So with those hopes in mind, here are the three questions. We're going to throw them up on the board. Question one. There are at least two errors that men can make make in relating to their spouses. Do you tend to be overly aggressive or overly passive as it relates to your spouse? Do you tend to be overly aggressive or overly passive? Question two, how are you cultivating your relationship with your wife? What are you doing or not doing in an intentional effort to study serve and surprise your wife by really engaging her on a heart level? How are you cultivating your relationship with your wife? What are you doing or not doing in an intentional effort to study, serve, and surprise your wife by really engaging her on a heart level? Question three, how are you cultivating your wife's love for Jesus? What are you doing or not doing in an intentional effort to posture your wife's heart at the throne of grace? What are you doing or not doing in an intentional effort to posture your wife's heart at the throne of grace? That's it. That's my hope for this morning. Three questions, three hopes for you, three opportunities or contexts for you to experience grace as you reflect on these things in private, in community, and in the context of your own marriage with your spouse. Let's pray, and then we'll come back around to the good news for all of us as we partake of communion. Father, I thank you for... Uh, your word. I thank you for uh, the picture of Christ loving the church because I recognize that we will fail as husbands and we have failed as husbands and so we just confess that we are in need of grace. If there is anyone who is honest with themselves this morning, Lord, they will say and recognize how far short they fall of your glory in the picture of the love that they should have for their brides. And so would you help us, Lord? Would you make us a church filled with men who are not overly aggressive, men who are not overly passive, but men who might uh, covenant and sacrifice uh, to love their wives as Christ loved the church, Lord? So we love you. We want to love you more. Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen.